like scary movies? Uh-huh. I'm getting ready to watch a video. You making popcorn? Uh-huh. What's, what's, what's your favorite? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. Talk to me. Talk, talk to me. Hi, everybody. I'm George, and welcome to The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest gets a very special what up, what up. You might know him from the Flagrant family of podcasts, including Hollywood Handbook, the Flagrant Ones, the underappreciated Formula Ones, and more. Please welcome Hayes Davenport. I don't know if that if it's underappreciated. Maybe underappreciated by us, because we don't do it that often. <laughs> That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah, this is really more of an accusation yeah. as saying, please give us more of it. <laughs> uh, thank you for doing the show. Thank you for buying an ad on the show. Oh, my pleasure, man. Happy to support. And, uh, you know, the the people that I've been talking to this whole time, I'm like, look, people who listen to your show, they're going to want to hear some of these people as well. It's a perfect fit. As far There's as a I'm lot concerned. of overlap. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror in Great. general? If it's something you're generally into or more like uh, something scared you away once upon a yeah. time, you know, that kind of thing. I'm not into it. And not real like... When I have seen like great horror movies and and I've I've seen like most of the ones that are considered like canonical like great movies apart from their genre right. status I you know I whatever The Shining It Follows in the last few years like I can appreciate all of those as like excellent excellent movies but I just have such a low tolerance ever since I was like a little kid for being surprised for loud noises for anything like spooky, like violence or whatever is not that big a deal. But, uh, you know, the, the prospect of being haunted, uh, anything like that is um, I, I just uh, get creeped out easily. I guess I've talked to another podcast about um, I read the. Uh, for like a movie like Hereditary, where everyone's like, "You have to see this. This is a great movie," and I'm just like, no, "Absolutely no chance, no chance." It follows was one thing. Hereditary, zero percent chance. <laughs> and so I, I will read the Wikipedia summary, and in that case, I did have a nightmare about the Wikipedia summary of of, of Hereditary. <laughs> This is a very relatable thing, though, because when I was not into horror as well, I, sh yeah. I should say up front that I came to horror pretty late in life. Okay. Um, and it, it was like a concerted effort. That's, that's inspirational for me. Yes. There's still time, Hayes. <laughs> but I literally would read. I, it, 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 it's that like attraction revulsion thing where you're like, oh, I want to imagine what I have could to be in this movie. Yes, I have to know exactly. I had to see a picture recently uh, in Barbarian. Mm -hmm. Everyone's like, oh, the monster in Barbarian. I was like, okay, I, well, I need to see a still image of what the what the monster looks like. I just have to know. Right. Not going to watch that either. <laughs> is there a subgenre within horror that you feel like is an easier sell to you? Something that you're like, oh, I like witches because it's not going to be like ghosts in particular or something like that you know or i like vampires something like that it has a, a great question it has nothing to do with a fear of any particular the supernatural or or anything like that it, it, it's the fact that the movies are scary like that's sure like that's <laughs> that's my issue uh so no i mean uh i would say like different aspects of those movies like resonate with me differently in the movie we're going to talk about today like sure. uh like you know I, I can have like different connections to it but it's really just like 
yeah, something popped out, and I did. <laughs> it was un- unpleasant. <laughs> it turns out I don't like that. Come out slower. Don't be so loud. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that, especially because of, you know, you mentioned It Follows, and yeah. I once burned myself very badly on some soup that I spilled when I got scared from the guy coming in the doorway. Oh, my God. Follows. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, like, every single... And, it, like, it... it I, I, in some ways, I appreciate it more than the average viewer who enjoys those movies because every time that happens to me, I watch that alone. I remember ex- every single piece of my viewing experience of It Follows. I was alone, I was working on a job in New York, living in like someone else's apartment. Not a scary place at, at all. Like New York is not scary, right? Because there's all these people around to help you, <laughs> right? But every jump scare in that movie is imprinted. On my brain, and some of the non like, and we'll we'll talk about David Robert Mitchell, but just like that movie also does really well. It it can surprise you, and also just like draw out the 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 horror for many many minutes. Definitely, yeah, full of dread yes. and surprise. Yes, that's right, exactly. Well, so let's get into it. The movie we're talking about today is Under the Silver Lake, a movie that I did already love, but I I found this to be an interesting choice. Over the last several years, you've shifted your attention from writing to working with Nithya Raman and the houselessness epidemic in particular, which you spoke about on a great episode of High and Mighty that I definitely encourage people to check out. And this movie in particular uh, feels like it is both steeped in L.A. and at a remove. It feels like Mulholland Drive or Sunset Boulevard to me, sort of asking if the transaction going on is worth it. And I'm wondering if this is part of your connection to the movie. A thousand percent. Not just the Hollywood side and like, yeah, transitioning out of a lot of the writing work I was doing, but also I live in Silver Lake Nithya is a city council member for L.A., and there's only 15, and L.A. is a huge city, so they have the biggest council districts of anywhere in the country. And so our district, this movie covers basically our entire district. We only have a little piece of Silver Lake, but we have the, half of the, the Silver Lake Reservoir. We have all of Los Feliz, where I feel like the movie is mostly in Los Feliz and the hills, right? which are also all in the district, and we extend up in the valley all the way into Reseda. But this movie to me, like, I I mean, obviously from the title on down is so anchored in its location, not just the city, but the specific part of the city. It is so evocative of this neighborhood where I also live. I live in Silver Lake. I mean, as any movie or horror movie goes, I I think it brings out so much of what is kind of terrifying about this place and just the central, like the anxieties of people who live here. Right. And also there's over like I work on a, a, a lot of like homelessness related issues like you were saying this movie dabbles in that as well I think even in more there are characters who are homeless and there's this kind of fantastical element to it but I think it it deals with it even more than the surface level so yeah everything you're saying that's part of the reason I connect with this movie I didn't see it until about three years after it came out because I was too scared. <laughs> Because I asked, I would ask people, like, can I, like, what am I getting into with this? Like, can I handle this? I saw It Follows. It was a a very difficult viewing experience, but I'm very glad I saw it. And so I was interested. And I got a mix of responses of people, like, who didn't like it that much. The movie is, like, very divisive. It's pretty messy. 
And also lots of people said it's very unnerving and disturbing. Like the way people it, – it, it's kind of the way people talk about um, after Hereditary and Midsummer, how people now talk about Bo is Afraid. Right. Like some people really loved it. People saying like it's it's much funnier than the other movies. It's weirder. It's not a conventional horror movie. You might be able to see it, but it's very upsetting. Right. The anxiety that permeates it. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. And when I first saw Under the Silver Lake, I was scared because I was anticipating even in like the first few minutes, the the dread is there pretty much all the way through. Yeah. And so like you're you're anticipating much more in terms of horror than there is, although there are some I, I would say fairly conventional horror sequences. Sure. They're the, straight up the, slasher at one yeah, point. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I do feel like this attitude uh, has been picking up some steam as far as recent movies, Damien Chazelle's work and the Fablemans both struck me as pro Hollywood on the surface level yeah. alone. And in Under the Silver Lake, a character says to our protagonist, Sam, everything you dreamed of being is part of a fabrication. And it sort of explores the idea of selling out. And in this movie, the metaphorical prostitution becomes literal. Yeah. Uh, women on billboards for contacts become clowns selling hamburgers as a replacement for love. I worked at ad agencies for a while. Yeah. And so I would not say on the same scale, but on some level, I know what it's like to uh, like writing as an act of expression and then be exploited to sell cars. Sure. Yeah. Well, let's talk about like the, like the main character in this movie. Sam. Yes. Andrew Garvey. Sam, whose name is not mentioned in the movie. Right. But this is like a main, like this guy is in every sequence. We never, we are experiencing this entire place in this world through this one person's eyes. Right. He worked, we just assume he worked in entertainment in some capacity. We don't know what, like they they talk about like how's work, what are you doing for work? That comes up all the time. People ask him constantly. He, he lies. Sometimes he kind of tells the truth, but mostly he lies to people that he is working. He is not working, and he hasn't been working for a while. And he's on the, he's on the verge of getting evicted. He's, uh, I, I think like, he hasn't paid his utilities, and so like certain like he hasn't kept up with anything. And he just stays home, and he watches Wheel of Fortune a lot, and he, like, he makes notes about patterns that he's seeing in, in, <laughs> right. in, in Wheel of Fortune. And we get the sense that he ha- he has this one casual sex relationship that he like has kept up with a little bit. For the most part, a lot of his friendships have kind of his relationships have been falling away right. for a while. He's from somewhere else. He's not from LA because he talks to his mom, and his mom like talks about like mailing him tapes that she's made of movies on TCM and things like that. So he moved here from some other place, and it has just not worked. He says at one point to uh, Topher, his friend uh, Topher Grace's character, like, I, I thought at some point that I was going to be someone that people cared about. Like, I was, right. was going to do something important. And Topher Grace says, Every, everyone feels like that. <laughs> everyone feels like that. And I really love also, you know, constantly throughout the movie, there's these little pools of, like, stagnant water of, like, just, like, cigarette ash yeah. sitting in the water and it does sort of capture that feeling of like oh this used to be something beautiful and now i am feeling that despair and feeling the cigarette yeah. ash of around my life yes another thing that i think is really important so this guy i mean like we'll, we'll talk about this in more detail but he is 
coming unglued. Yeah. And the and the like his detachment from reality is increasing. That's like a big part of the alienation with different friends. We watch it happen with Ricky Lindholm's character, this this woman that he just has sex with occasionally, where he talks about the patterns that he's seeing in media. He says like that talks about the what Vanna White's hand motions in Wheel of Fortune and all the <laughs> patterns he's documented. And he believes that he says like it, how can we possibly believe that media is just for one purpose right that messages are being sent that aren't meant for him necessarily they're meant for this like elite cabal of some kind this is something when we come into this movie this is something that this a journey this guy has already been on for some some amount of time yeah he's got a huge notepad full of these notations of vanna white's supposed signal that yes she's giving. exactly i think another really really important thing about this character in this setting, as far as this movie is concerned, is his age. It's a it's a little bit of a miscast, I think, just because Andrew Garfield could be playing a guy in his mid twenties. He just doesn't look like any age specifically between. I think he's right. like thirty nine now. So when this movie came out, he he was in his mid thirties, and the fact that this character is in his mid thirties is really important to the movie. They talk a lot about, like, he says he saw, very early on, he talks about, he saw Kurt Cobain live. Right. And so, like, that that's something that is, like, very detached from the experience of a lot of the people in Silver Lake that he's dealing with. I think part of the idea of the movie, even if it doesn't always come through, is that he is operating in these worlds with much younger people, in particular, much younger women. Right. They talk about, they go to old music night at the Crypt Club. <laughs> And it's like quarter shop, uh, <laughs> like Brimple Dash Bike quarter shop is playing. And they dance like, what's the frequency, Kenneth? And the girl he's Hell dancing yeah. with is like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> <laughs> and so like, I know not just, I mean, obviously in Hollywood, this is true, especially when it comes to actresses. This is very well documented. Sunset Boulevard is like one of the greatest movies of all time about aging in Hollywood. Right. But also, like, existing in a place that is kind of defined by its youth at, like, Silver Lake. In This was 2011. The movie is set in 2011. Made in 2018, set in 2011. Which was, 2011 was kind of the heyday of young Silver Lake as being the, the example of, like, a hipster, a gentrifying community for the rest of the country. And here's a guy who has basically aged out of that. That lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And he, he talks about, like, it, it, do you feel like at some point you just made a mistake in your life and, like, you're just living the wrong one and, like, you, you can't really go back and fix it? Like, at, at, in his mid-30s, he kind of feels like he's basically done. He, he's, he's cooked. And I was reading something about this movie that talks about what's the frequency, Kenneth? Like, what that, that song is about two different things. One is the, the, the title... Uh, I'm going to look up as we talk so I get this exactly right. The title refers to what uh, Dan Rather was attacked uh, on, on on the street in 1986 in, in New York City by a someone who was having some kind of mental breakdown who was just like screaming, what's the frequency, Kenneth, at him. And Michael Stipe also talks about what like the content of that song was about is... 
you know, there's a protagonist in the song where he says, I, I wrote it as a guy who's desperately trying to understand what motivates the younger generation who has gone to great lengths to try and figure them out. And at the end of the song, it's completely fucking bogus. He got nowhere. <laughs> so the combination of a, like a, some kind of mental break that's happening with this like search for connection and belonging in a, in a neighborhood that like doesn't really want you to be a part of it anymore. <laughs> uh, I think is, is a big part of what this movie is about. Definitely. And not only was this guy suffering from an attack, but I believe that the specifics were that he thought that there were like embedded messages yes. in the NBC broadcast. So yes. it's more, it's related through that function as well. Yes. And one thing that I uh, find really interesting about what you said about Kurt Cobain sort of being the dividing line for him to have seen him live. I also find it pretty interesting that it feels like he is the last gasp of that generation. Totally. Though, because he talks about how, he couldn't get Kurt to sign it. It's his daughter's signature. Yes. There. Yes. Because by the time he like gets something signed, like Kurt Cobain is dead. Right. And but he gets he gets he, yeah, it's his Francis Cobain's signature <laughs> on a on a poster. So he's he's just close enough to this to be like seeing this like youth all around him. And this like it's very connected to like women's bodies, right? This movie, yeah. this this guy has very severe hangups. Is not even the right word, but uh, <laughs> like he 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 has issues when it comes to like the um, the role of women in his life. It, it like it, right. it, it it inspires rage, lust, all these different. In, in particular, these very young women. Who uh, show up in in threes all through the movie? There's like these patterns of young women that he keeps seeing, and and he has like this vision board that he jerks off to, and the of like women from an older generation, from probably roughly the time that he was born. Mm -hmm. uh, it feels like mid early eighties. Uh, like it, it's not current right stuff. he stole his dad's playboy yeah exactly it's the first thing he ever jerked off to and he still jerks off to it and it's an image of a woman underwater that uh sort of upside down which is then replicated in the sequence in the movie right in the reservoir so like these images that he's like uh, that he lusts after like showing up in what we see in the movie uh, the movie wants you to know that a lot of the stuff is happening in his head yeah definitely I also, one last thing about What's the Frequency, Kenneth, yeah. I believe there is a line in it that's like, retreating in disgust is not the same as apathy. Yeah. And that's a, a you know, also very thematic line for this. It's, it's so fascinating because Sam, the character, Andrew Garfield does such a great job of making him watchable and enjoyable yes. as someone we're following through yes. this. But as you say, he is not like a no. nice dude. He's no. not a good guy. He's a realistically sort of, toxic portrayal of a noir detective what would this guy be like in real life and it sort of escapes the trappings of just a noir movie or even just a neo-noir movie to sort of create its whole new thing i mean i compared it to mulholland drive that really is yeah. one of the few things that feels the closest to this mm -hmm. because it has that surreality mm -hmm. that is constantly playing along with this it also you know a lot of postmodern neo-noir 
What they do to upset you and disturb you is they uh, do resolution denial, right? And in this, you kind of do get a resolution to every single thread. And, and I feel like that is something that doesn't happen that often. And then on top of that, you know, you mentioned Topher Grace's character, literally named Bar Buddy. He provides the analysis of the movie in real time. Yes, he does. Right. So for us as viewers, you're like, okay, I that burden is lifted from me now. So what you're left with is to analyze that self-analysis and yeah. the form of the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, why are so few characters named? What does that say about the character perspectives? That kind of thing. And the camera itself does two incredible jobs in this movie. First, it has a pretty intense male gaze in a medium-is-the-message kind of way. In less purposeful executions would be a symptom of patriarchy and how women are treated in entertainment. And so it's built, it's designed in a way to get you talking about this topic. Yes. And and that shows up in so many different versions and so many different devices. He has binoculars that he looks at Riley Keough's character down by the pool Topher Grace has a drone that he got on Amazon to to spy on women. There's it shows up at least like in five different mechanical ways over the the course of the movie. Absolutely, and it also captures Sam's perspective not just as one of any number of dudes who might act this way, but also his specific spiral. Yeah, he's the exact kind of unanchored type of guy who might latch on to conspiracies for that paradoxical stability that they provide. If you're feeling insignificant in the face of the world's chaos you need a scapegoat to point at yes so let's let's talk about that in a little more detail because this is the thing that i kind of find most chilling about the movie and it's something that resonates with a lot of my own experience yeah so la is the type of place that and this is like trite in uh like in how many times it's been represented and it's all the way through this movie but it's a place that attracts people that are seeking some type of love affirmation like have have some kind of void that they feel like needs filling with feeling beloved by as many people as possible right and his character talks about that and it didn't work out and you also, as everyone knows, that was not the way to treat whatever your issue was in the first place. Right. Like that, that is not the treatment that oh, you needed. Okay. And even if you got it, even if you got that love and adoration, like these very abstract characters in the movie, like the songwriter and Jefferson Sevens and all these like uh, people that did make it are st- still have the same voids that they showed up with and are just seeking increasingly bizarre ways to uh, to to fill those voids i meet a lot of people i do like out you know i'm like in the street every day working with people who, who are homeless and a, a lot of the people you meet are just have some financial situation that needs resolving or have like some family issue they got kicked out you know a very kind of coherent reason why they're on the street and that, that we can help resolve but you also meet a lot of people with mental health issues. And this movie gets a lot right in terms of what is happening to this character, the way his mental health issues manifest, and how slippery the slope can be and how kind of scary it is to not know what of your... I mean, 
it's almost scarier to think about than to actually experience. Like to think about the possibility that your perception is of of the world is not real, right? And that at at any time it could start to slip, and you might feel it coming for a little while, but at some point you're not even going to know anymore how how detached you are from the real world. I was talking to a guy this morning who I, I hadn't met before, but he just was like passing through an area where I was doing outreach. And he said that he, you know, he's lived in LA for a long time and he used to do work as like uh, club promoting type stuff. And then he said like he, he started to have an issue with gang stalking. Are you familiar with this term? No, I'm not familiar. So gang stalking is what people describe as an issue where um, people are, there's like a conspiracy to harass you. And so, like, people that are just, like, passing on the street will bump you, will beam messages at you. It can take a lot of different forms. But it's basically a very, very common symptom. Of, and what it actually is is a very, very common – a common enough symptom of, of certain mental health conditions that it has become a widespread term that, that people use. Okay. But it's something that people believe is, is happening – for real, it's a it's a paranoid it's a manifestation of paranoid schizophrenia. Right. And this guy even said, you know, I know for like basically everyone when that happens to you, like it's fake, like it's not real. It's just something you think is happening, but it is actually happening to me. And he said, I just see patterns that are just like undeniable. And I'm having this conversation and I'm thinking like I can't. I watch Under the Silver Lake last night. I can't believe right. I'm about to talk about <laughs> this thing. That I see a lot. A lot of people yeah. talk about gang stalking. It is not real. It's not something that actually happens. But the internet created a way to basically Google that experience to say, like, this is happening to me. How can I stop it? And it pulls up forums of people who talk about this experience that they're having. And one of the core principles of this community is if people tell you that it's not real, then they're part of the conspiracy. Oh, boy. <laughs> and so imagine the issues that that creates for families, for medical professionals, for people that are trying to pull someone out of this condition. Right. And this, is, this guy I was talking to, otherwise like completely coherent able to he was like recycling he's able to like manage his own life he's not like naked and like it, you know in in immediate grave danger which makes his means that there are fewer like immediate treatment options for him like this is someone that you are going to have to do a lot of work to bring into a healthier situation this character as 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 fantastical as people think this movie is and it obviously like the, what happens in it is there is is not anchored in reality at all right but the path that this guy is on is terrifyingly real yeah it is a very powerful thing and the camera does such a great job of facilitating that you know there was a really great description of it that i saw uh, in a review from brightwall dark room and it said in early scenes, the camera moves with a sort of frantic, hyper-focused gaze that typifies the experience of mania. Mm -hmm. But as the story unspools, that gaze will drift into reveries, turning its focus away from Sam during a conversation mm -hmm. to examine a tree's canopy, mm -hmm. or scurrying across the floor in an animalistic frenzy while Sam has a casual chat. Mm 
Yeah. And by the climax, the film's observing eye begins losing time, yeah. with the editing growing choppy to the point of cutting off conversations mid-sentence, mm-hmm. compressing whole sequences into just a few jagged shards. And his delusions are so powerful that they are warping the reality of the movie. Yes. His inflated self-esteem here says, despite no training or skills, I'm the one who can unravel this conspiracy. And because it's it's reflective of his perspective, he's right. Yes. The specific blend of transient pop culture baubles that he's surrounded himself with yes. are exactly what he needs to pierce the veil. Yes. This is so, like, gosh, the, the search um, for this guy and for a lot, a lot of the people that I meet for some explanation for why they feel the way they feel. It, it's so real. It's so accurate. And he like he he feels like he's getting these messages, these signals from from somewhere, and he goes out, and it's like it's funny, like you, that's totally right. The way the, the the sequences work, the camera works in this movie, the most fantastical moments, like he meets this character, the songwriter, who is seemingly like centuries old, has created all of the like the most beloved music that we think of, of having been done by an artist has just been done by this this one person for mass consumption and then he he, he kills him in the most right. like violent sequence in the movie but that the see the conversation leading up to that is so long is so kind of steady and almost like at rest compared to like other parts of the movie but it's also the part where it has the least likelihood of actually happening Right. So his fantasies are getting in some ways like more as he gets farther and farther away from what's actually happening. His fantasies kind of settle in to to feeling more real, I guess. If, if, yeah. if that's maybe the intention. Yeah, it creates that Lynchian surreality. It has sort of a comfort with the bizarre. And it helps to make the movie kind of a cool puzzle, you know? Like, there's a guy who's important to the story who's dressed in a pirate costume. Yes. And we don't know if that's Sam being delusional, if that's the guy dressing up for a role like Ricky Lindholm does, or if that's just his thing. Oh, yeah, that's Jim. He dresses like a pirate. Yeah, that's the setting, baby. Exactly. That's (laughs) the setting. If it were anywhere else, you'd be like, no, there's no one would do that. But... It's not just that, like, it's Silver Lake at a time when that type of peacocking was like, I know a guy who who didn't dress like a pirate, but he used to dress like a sea captain type. <laughs> there person. you go. Right there around that go. time. People were trying different stuff to, to stand out in, in that world. And that's right. also how you would, as an older guy, I think, like, signal that you were s- still interesting enough to hang out with younger women. That's I like that's what you that these are the type of guys who you would see doing that type of thing. Sure, definitely. Yeah, I mean, the way this movie the, like there's there's one thing that kind of evokes it the most that feels the most real whether or not it's actually happening. He he goes to a party pretty late in the movie, but he follows a coyote to this party and he he meets someone who it's pretty clear is his ex-girlfriend. And it, it's revealed later that it seems like like part of this unraveling was inspired by a pretty devastating breakup. And she says, how are you? And he says, fine, doing good or whatever. Do you remember what she says? No, I don't think I remember this. She says, I'm really glad to hear that. Oh, God. <laughs> so, like, 
that something has been in progress mm-hmm. for a long time with this with this guy. Just to, like you know, some of the horror elements of this movie and how they connect with uh, this person's breakdown. Well, the first shot of the movie is a backwards, like you, you see backwards that someone has graffitied outside of Mustard Seed Cafe, I think, on Hillhurst. Beware the dog killer. Right. Someone's killing dogs. And by the end of the movie, I think it's, I, I, I've read that there are different theories on it, but it's pretty clear that the movie wants you to come away with the fact that like it's Andrew Garfield. He has been killing the dogs. He carries dog treats in his pocket. And this character at the end is like, why do you have dog treats in your pocket? He has a different explanation every time someone asks. Different explanation about all of his re- like response to dogs as well. Like, yes. Oh, I got bit by a dog as a youth. Oh, I yes. like dogs. My dog just died. Yes. And the one that feels the most real is that his ex-girlfriend had a dog and he just wanted to like you know, go back and pet the dog, rub its ears again, and like like he used to, and everything would be okay. But often, something we see is like women will suddenly start barking at him. Right. There's this inextricable connection between the type of woman, maybe exemplified by his ex girlfriend, that he lusts after and hates, that he has transferred onto dogs, who he again like strongly implied is now like going around and and killing. So this is a person, uh, like, I, it, it's the type of fear-mongering that I hear a lot about, like, people on the street, like, you know, this that this mental break is going to lead to someone becoming a serial killer and whatever, and it's not, not something I've personally <laughs> seen, <laughs> but th- that's kind of, like, what we're witnessing in this movie, it feels like, is the birth of a horror movie character, or he's, he's right. at least on that path. But we can get we can get to the ending later, but uh, about whether or not he actually ends up in in that place, or whether that's whether it's kind of resolved. Yeah, I um, it does come up a lot. I feel like it does definitively. Uh, so we, I'll save the deeper analysis for the end because I think that the yeah. credits, literally the credits, basically put the like the final nail in the coffin, yeah. as it were. But I agree. I think it does point towards Sam being the dog killer. For a litany of reasons. And and there are moments where you're like, well, maybe it's saying like it could be just and Sam is emblematic of any of a thousand dudes that it could be. Yeah. But ultimately, I do think it lands on no specifically he is the one doing this. Yeah. So we'll, we'll get to that for sure. My last thing about the context that I want to say before we get into the actual plot, I don't have a lot to say about it. Just that the score itself rocks. Uh, very throwback. Lots of woodwind and brass. Yeah. Feels a lot like old Hollywood, which obviously is something that he views as sort of not only an age of innocence in a way, because it's only an age of innocence if you're a man, right? If yes. you were the, the kind of person who would have power in that Hollywood system. And so he is constantly lusting after that. And the, like I said, the, the movie itself form is function. Mm-hmm. The music represents that in the same way the camera does. Well, here's a really interesting second level of analysis. So yes, this character definitely associate, like the score kicks in this old Hollywood score often when he's like with this, this woman, Riley Keough, and she's lit in a way like mm-hmm. like Janet Gaynor, who they talk uh, you know they talk a lot about old Hollywood in this movie, but it feels like this character would actually associate like the glory days with you know he has a Super Nintendo in his in his apartment he has a VHS right. 
player. He's constantly wearing Nintendo shirts, too. Like, we first see him in, yes. a, in a Duck Hunt shirt. So I think if we were actually... Uh, you, you know, like psychoanalyzing this character, mm. the type of score that he would apply to like big moments in his life would be the type uh, that it follows had. Sure, big synthy, <laughs> right? Synthy moments. Like yeah. if this is David Robert Mitchell saying, like, like copping to some of his own anxieties and insecurities. Like he basically, mi- and it's the same composer. It's a disaster piece, right? I mean, it, it wouldn't necessarily fit tonally with this movie. But it just makes me think, like, oh, this is so connected. Like, this type of guy is just so connected to this, the creator of this movie. Like, he's right. he's kind of plumbing the depths of himself in, in so many ways. Definitely. So let's get into it. We do have this great opening. You have the flashing colors and opening beats of music that do give way to this very eerie opening with the slow reveal of the daydreaming Sam ogling a woman who's cleaning a window of graffiti saying, beware the dog killer. Very representative of the movie at large and everything that's going to happen. He's at Mustard Seed. Where we, where we set up is like, this is one of the places that typifies this neighborhood in this setting mm-hmm. it's where the young cool people hang out certainly it was where they were hanging out in 2011 there's a big focus on like intelligentsia as they yes, pass as yes. well at one point and we follow the people in line talking and everyone you see from the like the women that he's staring at to like the younger guys and like the big chunky glasses and stuff you're just kind of like oh here we here we are Right. And the guy's wearing a my all my friends are dead shirt. Yes. Like it truly you're in the moment of that. We're time. here. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's met you know, again, this it's great it's a great actor. He got a, a good person to play this role, but I think we are kind of supposed to understand that this person is older than most of the people around. And as he's walking home, a squirrel plummets from the sky, looking at him pitifully before dying, which that's probably a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> you forget it. By the end of the movie, you're like, oh, yeah, that it starts insane. The movie's yeah. insane from the very beginning. <laughs> yeah, it gets so far down the, uh, down the path. It's one of the most like, <laughs> like implausible, absurd things that happens in the movie is the right. second moment. Five seconds in. Yes. There is a topless older woman across the balcony from Sam, who he also ogles while absentmindedly talking to his mom. There are a few things of note about this. First is, yeah, the casualness with which Sam lies to his mom about having a busy job that he needs to get back to. Second, the woman has a parrot that comes up multiple times as speaking something indecipherable, something pretty thematic for a movie about parsing hidden messages. And Ricky Lindholm later on will suggest that the parrot is saying not a friend. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that it is emphasized so early makes me feel like maybe it's supposed to be a warning about the town, perhaps. Mm -hmm. But also his mom brings up Janet Gaynor for the first time. And Janet Gaynor specifically was strong-armed into stardom by her father. Mm. So... Right away, you're also playing into the themes of women being preyed upon by men. And multiple women in the movie mention feeling connected to Janet Gaynor. You know, I think mm-hmm. that that is sort of supposed to say that this is not like a one-time thing, that everybody feels this in some way or another. Women being preyed on by men, but also someone being compelled into L.A. and the entertainment industry by wanting to please their apparent in some way. His mother loves Hollywood. Right. Loves old Hollywood. And so that could be part of a desire to please women that underpins a lot of his, his, his life and, and his, uh, his mental health problems. 
Riley Coe's Sarah arrives at the pool with her dog and a sassy attitude towards the older woman, the perfect blank slate for his projections and fantasies, as well as a mystery to be solved. So this is the girl with his dreams. She's not just hot. She gives him a purpose, which yeah. is something that he talks about desiring. Let's talk about the casting of her and a few others in this movie. This is... Elvis's granddaughter. She is great in the role, but then yes. on top of that, it is like perfect casting from a meta textual perspective yes. as well. This will come up later, but Grace Van Patten is also in this movie who is the, the, the niece of the comedy actor Dick Van Patten. Oh, wow. I don't think I knew that. Yeah. And so there's like it, it 100% intentional, I think, to, to be the specter of old Hollywood is, is, is all over this movie. Definitely. Uh, he is distracted from this by the arrival of Ricky Lindholm, though. Like we said, more of like a friend with benefits than a girlfriend. Right, yeah. She is wearing one of several sexualized outfits, quote unquote, for a role. Her name is literally actress in mm -hmm. this movie. Yep. This might be a little bit of a reach, but there's another small possible example of his delusion warping things that are that's laid out here. She asks why it stinks in here. Yeah. And he claims that it's from the massive skunk population. Mm hmm. I think it's from the dirty, disgusting pile of dishes in the sink. I think it could be from a bunch of dog carcasses. Oh, fuck. <laughs> True that, too. Holy shit. You know, <laughs> I didn't even think about that. I, yeah, th that are just hidden away somewhere. Wow. I switched my answer to that. But lo and behold, later on, his excuse comes true. So yes, that's true. Yes. And there are a lot of skunks in this neighborhood. Like I said, might have been a reach, but yeah. felt like I had to mention it. Yeah. I'm putting my tinfoil hat on for yeah. this app. Yeah. While they have sex, they watch the news report about a missing billionaire, Jefferson Sevens. The way that Sam lays on Ricky Lindholm there at the end is so funny. Yeah. <laughs> it just, like, collapses. Yeah. And she also finds some kind of deranged-looking notes, which Sam hastily stows away. We find later on that these are the Vanna White notes that he's been taking, but he recognizes that it will seem crazy to tell someone about this, so he shoves it into the drawer. Yeah. He heads to a comic shop, and he buys a zine about the fucked up shit going on in Silver Lake. He actually Lake. goes to the last bookstore, which is a very, I mean, it's like also like a tourist attraction, but it's something that locals will like go to as well. It's downtown. It's not in this mm. neighborhood. Almost feels like they miss a permit for like Skylight Books is the place where he could have gone in this, in this neighborhood. It must have been their first, something went wrong. Because it's the only time he leaves this like general area to go downtown. Skylight Books said, "We're not carrying that zine, dude." Yeah, something <laughs> something went wrong, and, uh, and and they ended up at the last bookstore. So you know that's where it is. The owner of the shop agrees to pass along Sam's number to the uh, to the creator, although he doesn't need Sam's five dollars, yeah. which really made me laugh really there. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> My first watch, I thought this clerk was Judah Friedlander, but it is, in fact, Sky Elabar from The Greasy Strangler, which is a movie that oh, I enjoy. Oh, cool. Cool. So there you go. Yeah. That night, Sam does finally meet Sarah. We talked about the swelling music, the light across her face. It does feel old Hollywood. Additionally, we find out her dog's name is Coca-Cola mm -hmm. and uses, she refers to an old slogan, dependable as sunshine. Yeah. So very throwback. And yeah. she invites him in to smoke weed and watch How to Marry a Millionaire. Yeah. As part of my research for this, I watched that movie. Wow. And I did enjoy it. Great. <laughs> I, I did like it, but an ungenerous reading of it might see it as yet another movie made by men to depict women as vapid predators. Yeah. Well, she, and, and this plays out in a pretty on-the-nose way, but she has a poster of it on her wall. 
and she has three dolls of the of the main characters Lauren Bacall, Betty Grable, and Marilyn Monroe. Exactly. While they're on the bed, he looks at the tattoo on her ankle and says, thank God for temporary, which is funny and ironic considering the movie's view on the ephemeral nature of pop culture. Mm -hmm. And just to give you an idea of really how deep the research goes on this podcast, Hayes, I went out and I got saltines and I got OJ. You tried it. I tried the secret flavor that Sarah is taking advantage of here. What do you uh, What do you think? I think it was pretty good. Okay, you know, it has that kind of like salty and sweet vibe. The OJ yeah. kind of cuts the salt, but it's not just like so sweet because it has the the acid. Wow, um, it doesn't seem I don't like know it would I'm, be that good. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm going around being like, "Yo, you got to try this crazy secret flavor that I unlocked," but. I'm also saying, like, hey, if you have this nostalgia for it, like Sarah does, it was like yeah. a sick day kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, I get it, I guess. <laughs> what? Uh, I, I, I forget. What is the tattoo of? You remember? I think it was like a flower. A flower. Okay, and so yeah. if, you know, that is thematic in terms of, like, innocence and beauty yeah. that is wilting and, yeah. and vanishing. Yeah. But they smooch, but they're interrupted by her roommates coming home with the previously mentioned guy who's dressed as a pirate. Mm-hmm. And she kicks Sam out, saying that they can hang out tomorrow. And as he departs, there are fireworks in the sky. Late in the season for fireworks, Sam says, while she looks up glumly. And first of all, as a city guy, let me say, that's never stopped anybody before. (laughs) Yes, for sure. True in L.A. as well. I would say the way these fireworks are playing, it's a fireworks show. Mm -hmm. It's And, and, you know, everything in this movie is very intentional. And it's it's fireworks over, like, their, like, the end of their sort of meet cute and, like, this is not happening. This was my my read on it. Like this is this is in his head. Well, that's interesting because I hadn't considered that, but it is so intentional that somebody assigned dots or dashes based on the firework noise. Okay. And if you filter the fireworks through Morse code, the resulting message says ascend now. Wow. What? And so it's a sleeper agent call to Sarah. Wow. <laughs> that explains why she acts so weird after she had asked Sam to come over the next day. Cause she thought she would be there. So that's what it was. It was a message that, that right. he couldn't see. Gosh. And Sam's night is worse than just not getting lucky because he walks home to find his beloved Mustang has a giant ejaculating dong keyed into the hood along with some door scratches, gum on it, eggs, the works. Unfortunately for these kids, they didn't move fast enough, and Sam takes his rage out on them by kicking the shit out of them. It is funny in a very dark way. You realize this guy isn't just, like, a little bit of a perv. Yeah. He also is full-on psycho. Because it's played super real. Yeah. You're like, oh, this is is happening. He really did. (laughs) He really did do this. Yeah, he he really like, and they like get in on the kid's face too. Yeah, it's like a ten year old kid. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's brutal. He goes home. He reads the zine. This scene is pretty awesome looking with the black and white animation suddenly. And the zine says, along with the story of the dog killer, which, like we said, we'll talk about, that Silver Lake was originally called Edendale, Mm -hmm. which does play with the idea of the Dream Factory, the promise of paradise that lures people to L.A. Mm -hmm. It also creates an easy transition back to what we think is reality, yeah. but actually is a nightmare that Sam has about stumbling on a dead dog and one of the biscuits that he had just given to Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. And it becomes clear that it's a dream when suddenly the dog corpse becomes a human corpse, 
I couldn't tell, but I thought maybe it was supposed to be sevens there. Maybe. Um, and, yeah. and that was where it was coming from. But more importantly, Sarah seems to be kneeling over this person, eating his guts. But when they turn, it's not her. It's some maniacal looking dude who grins, then barks at Sam as the corpse splits in half and flies off screen in both directions. Yeah. Probably fine. And that location that we see a couple other times is a real, it's, it's part of our council district as well. It's called Ferndale, and it's sort of connected to Griffith Park, where a lot of the movie takes place. And it is this kind of weird fantasy environment right in the middle of this enormous city where the they don't show this, but it's always kind of freaked me out. The creek that runs alongside it is filled with crayfish. Ooh. which someone brought from these are not native to this this area someone brought right. them in and they've just like uh, multiplied there in a very intense way yeah yeah geez sam wakes up to more dog death on screen as someone in an old movie is talking about gassing unwanted dogs yeah sam you can see himself view it viewing himself as an unwanted dog after the breakup mm-hmm. and he also has a spider-man comic stuck to his hand with the gum you gotta laugh right come on <laughs> He goes to see Sarah, but she's gone. Not just not there, she's fully moved out. And he does gripe about this to his bar buddy. I love the set design on this, like, dank bar where there's a little bit of sun coming through the window on the door, and then when someone opens it, it's just blinding sunlight. Mm -hmm. Really gets that feeling of, like, oh, I'm being a degenerate in this bar at noon. Yes, (laughs) and that's one of the... uh, uh, it's one of two bars, I don't know exactly which one it is, also on Hillhurst, that are exactly that type of shield your eyes with the <laughs> when anyone opens the door type places. Now with a few drinks in him, Sam breaks into Sarah's apartment to look for clues, and there's a box with not much in it, but someone does still come to collect it, and Sam scrambles for the window. Mm-hmm. But on his way out, he spots a symbol on the wall that will find out is hobo code. Yeah. Thematically relevant, since it would be a code in plain sight for those in the know, mm-hmm. but I do find it interesting that it's sort of inverse with the low status nature of transients that would come along with it. Yep. He follows this woman to a white Volkswagen rabbit, probably, you know, not a reference, I'm sure, down down the rabbit hole. he, uh, She and two pals take this to a seemingly innocuous scoreboard that then flashes them the message of 751. That's a scoreboard uh, at John Marshall High School. You might think it's a bizarre, absurd, creative choice to have the, the home team be named the Barristers, <laughs> but that is, that, that is real. Uh, that is the mascot of John Marshall High School. Wow. Powerful. That's a powerful choice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I do also love that he writes this code on the back of a parking ticket. Yes. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Things have been going wrong for quite a while. (laughs) He tails them to a pedal boat rental on the lake. On Echo Park Lake. Another iconic location in, in Los Angeles. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely iconic. And this, this pirate guy emerges from nowhere. He grabs the box and he scarpers away and you go, what the fuck just happened? (laughs) Just like he does. The tailing finally leads him to the party named Purgatory, which he parks for with an illicit handicapped placard. Every time that I watch this movie, I notice something else that he does where you're like, oh my God, this guy fucking sucks. The, the, someone should distract his car and parking choices to the point where he loses his car altogether. Right. It's just, it's a, it's a spiral of its own. Definitely. And at this party, he hears a woman intoning about male gaze and the sacred trinities of women. 
this does lend credence to that theory that the repeating triple women are symbols of the maiden, mother, and crone triple goddess Mm -hmm. linked to the moon as well, and telling this whole thing sort of as a reimagining of the story of Persephone. This also ties into the male gaze, and as you sort of alluded to earlier, the way that misogynists tend to view women as like either someone to conquer, someone to mother them, or someone repulsive. Like mm-hmm. those are the three options, virgin, crone, mother. Mm-hmm. Um, also in attendance at purgatory are Jesus and the vampire brides, more trinities on both sides of that, because, you know, there's the Jesus trinity. There's, this is my favorite line of the movie. It's Jesus and the brides of Dracula. I think is the uh, 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 I think is the name of the band, right? And one of them is talking to a guy later, one of the brides, and saying like, "Yeah, it was going to be the brides of Frankenstein at one point. <laughs> we were just a little concerned that like the vampire thing was a little too played out." Now this is 2011, so the guy says, "Yeah, I I, I can see why you'd be worried about that." It's <laughs> <laughs> just such a funny way to like very authentic way to give it to be like, "Yeah, that is bad." <laughs> yeah, you were right to do that. You should you should consider switching. Yeah. <laughs> they sing Turning Teeth, which, uh, you know what? Say what you will about pop music. I enjoyed the song. It's a great song. <laughs> and and it yeah. feels so of, of of that time. And they got, it's the Silver Sun Pickups, who are the band also, a, I mean, Silver Sun, the, uh, the, the Silver Sun Pickups are named after Silver Sun Plaza, which is the intersection of Sunset Boulevard and Silver Lake Boulevard. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Where there's a big mural of Elliot Smith as well. So it goes wow. it goes deep. I also like the dance that this woman wearing balloons does to yes. the song. It's a fun scene. Yeah. And this is also a band, just to establish like whether or not this is happening for real, he has picked up an, an issue of LA Weekly, which was a couple years away from basically uh, ceasing to exist, and uh, as mm. anyone understood it. But it, it with with this band on the cover. And and it's it ends up being part of his little uh, masturbation vision board. And so the question already kind of arises, like, is this now a fantasy that he's embarked on just from bringing this magazine home? The combination of the magazine, the zine, his old playboys, this little board could the entire movie could just be kind of created in his mind out of this out of this board. Absolutely. Absolutely. I also, you know, you mentioned a line that you like from this. One of the lines I like is uh, one of the women that he followed jokes, you don't become a bride without fucking Jesus. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that, that reminds me, didn't occur to me uh, until now, you know, one of those three women is uh, Zosha Mamet. No, I didn't know that. Her her father is David Mamet. Right. Yeah. So wow. yet another could not be more intentional. Yeah. Holy cow. The The offspring of like Hollywood royalty or all the way through this this movie, especially in the women that he kind of lusts after. And there's a term that we've now started to use since this movie came out for some of these specific people, which is Nepo baby, which is a term basically born out of the type of resentment that Andrew Garfield's character feels Add another layer of why he would feel very strongly about these characters, beautiful, unattainable by someone like him, young, not interested in his like decrepit 33-year-old ass. (laughs) Also, at least like the the actors, it was all handed to them. 
Right. That's what the, the, the that's what this type of person, uh, Sam, is always thinking. Everyone else just got it handed to them, except me. Right. It's so deliberate, and like we said, the movie itself is doing the analysis of the text so that you look at things like yes. this. So you say, why are these people cast in these roles? What does this say about the movie? Yeah. It really does work in such an interesting way where mm-hmm. it's layers upon layers. Mm-hmm. He continues to follow this woman now into the bathroom, which, first mistake. Yep. Then he finally approaches her about Sarah uh, and grabs her, and so she rightfully knees him in the crotch. Yes. <laughs> While on the ground, a bunch of women enter and yell at him, and suddenly we shift to his perspective, and this is where we get them barking at him. Yes. Very kind of scary moment when that happens. It is. Yeah, it's very unsettling. He slinks out with his tail between his legs, and he's greeted by Alan, the delightful Jimmy Simpson. Always a pleasure. Yeah, yeah, he's a lot of fun (laughs) in this movie. And the group notices Millicent Sevens at the party. This character... His dialogue is very authentic as this kind of like funny, not funny guy. This guy is always doing these little like kind of exhausting bits. Yeah. <laughs> oh, if you want to fuck Jesus, then you yeah. should talk to me on Sunday oh, or whatever. Like, oh, yes. Come on, dude. Yes, exactly. <laughs> After the party, though, Sam gets a call from the writer of the zine who invites him over tomorrow. Patrick Fischler. Ooh, amazing. The you know the most scared I have ever been in a movie. He was largely responsible for the scene, the Heinwinkies and Mulholland Drive that everyone listening to your show knows about. He is also he's not Hollywood royalty by any means, but there's in Malibu. Anyone who's like Malibu, Santa Monica border, anyone who's been driving up the Pacific Coast Highway has seen a a restaurant called Patrick's Roadhouse. It has a very distinctive kind of uh, kitschy facade exterior. Mm -hmm. It's his parents' restaurant named after him when he was a baby. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's fun. And again, yeah, playing into that, you know, it's not Hollywood per se, but it is the large, like it's Hollywood in the Mm -hmm. the area. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's that's cool. Yep. I also, yeah, I mean, he is so fucking amazing in Mulholland Drive. That scene yes. is fucking incredible. Yeah, it's perfect. I was saying, that, like, you know, you never see him again in that movie, nope. that this is the same guy. He had his third yep. eye opened yep. by the scare-blocked Winkies. Yep. Yep. This is in the Mulholland Drive-averse. Yep. And during the walk home, Sam is startled by a shadowy figure that doesn't seem to have quite human proportions. It mm-hmm. seems to move in, uh, instantaneously. In the same place where he, this, that's Ferndale, where he had the, the, the dream about the dead dog. He's brought back to reality by the spraying of a skunk. Mm-hmm. You know, that, this is what sort of shocks him out of this Yeah, fantasy. he gets sprayed all over in the mouth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the news reports that the body of Jefferson Sevens has been found with three prostitutes, and Sam puts the clues together to realize that it was Sarah in there with him. Ricky comes over dressed as a nurse now. She reads the other part of the zine, which details the owl's kiss as Sam bathes in tomato. This is where he tells her I just about want to say, the like, Vanna White thing. Where they get like urban legend type like mythical information, the fact that it is like a zine around mm-hmm. this time is also like meant to be a very location specific element maybe. yeah for sure hey that it felt very location yeah. specific as well like there are definitely like zines and stuff but that idea of like the zine scene it's silver lake it's 2011 yeah like, yeah yeah i love you know you, you mentioned that the paranoid music and everything was happening as he's telling ricky about this don't you think it's crazy that the infrastructure is exactly what it's told it is? And it swells and swells and swells and then just cuts out as she's like, uh, yeah, okay, dude. <laughs> like, whatever you say. Another, oh my God, this line is so funny. This is actually my favorite one in the movie. He says like, 
isn't it impossible that like rich people don't just like know some things that that we don't know and she goes good restaurants <laughs> like yes she's right that's they right. do know the good restaurants. they do know the good restaurants that's right she does bail yeah. and he dreams of sarah again that night Swimming in the pool, she does a leg lift reference to one of the few completed scenes from Monroe's Something's Gotta Give, which does sort of cement her as a troubled damsel in distress in his mind. Yeah. Until suddenly she starts barking at Sam as well and vanishes in the water before he wakes up. He walks through town the next morning. He sees a skeezy looking dude running auditions for young women out of his garage. Yes, that's really funny. Uh oh. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, his car is getting repossessed. Oh, and he also, but he stumbles upon graffiti that says, like, beware the dog killer. That's right. More of it. It's disturbing the young women of the area. And this is also around the time, like, as part of his just, like, general decline, like, everyone around him is like, do you smell that? Like, what's that smell? Oh, because he has <laughs> right. been skunked. And so, like, like, whether or not he was actually skunked to lead to this smell, just, like, it's on that path of physical mental decline that you would see if this were actually happening to somebody right his car does get possessed i find the car to be pretty interesting and you know we i talked about the sort of toxic masculinity that he's demonstrating but the car also kind of demonstrates how it can manifest in other ways you know sam is underwater pun not intended but it does fit on lease payments for this shiny new mustang it is so clearly out of his price range yeah but society has put him in competition with every other man and since the financial structure here doesn't actually serve us they're more than happy to give him a loan he can't pay yes. to facilitate that competition yes type of car also that a guy who who grew up in the 80s would buy thinking that it's something that would impress women young women right. the, the, but like the women of silver lake in 2011 are not interested in that car and you would barely see it and and it really stands out as like oh this is some like weird asshole like type yeah. car you know friggin bar buddy calls it the cock rocket yes <laughs> <He's> like, exactly <laughs> so he, he makes his way over to patrick fishler who does seem kind of normal at first i love when he's like cold beer hot day yes <laughs> like fuck yeah dude yes <laughs> Until suddenly we see that he has a ton of life masks, an ironic name for the Hall of the Dead-looking faces that line his walls. He says, I need to get a family so I can have someone to give these to. Yes, well, there's a, there's a there's another really funny moment where there's a little pause between, like, I need to, like, I need a family. Like, it's like, yes, <laughs> that's, that would maybe help. But that he says, so I have someone to give these to. It's like, that's okay, right. that's not why, but sure. <laughs> the masks do look like statues, specifically the ones at the upcoming secret show, whose cemetery aesthetic is borrowing liberally from Egyptian and Greek culture, and specifically the way that they treated deities. And that's that's real. Uh, Hollywood Forever Cemetery uh, uh, has statues. Uh, it has a lot of really famous people buried there. Statues of I think D.D. Ramone is one of the most distinctive Ooh. ones, like on his on his gravestone. And that mausoleum, people do the uh, outdoor screenings there. Cinespia, very popular thing for young people to do around that time. And also the the parties in the mausoleum are real. I used to go every year. A friend was friends with a member of Maroon Five. 
And every mm. year they would have their Halloween party at Hollywood Forever Cemetery in the in the mausoleum. It was a great party. Sounds pretty cool. Yeah, sounds pretty cool. So, but I just to say, like, it's funny how you like some of the stuff that this character could easily have made up and be like fantasizing about. It's like, no, these are actually authentic details, right? From what it was like being that age around that time in, in L.A. Yeah, there are definitely sort of ripped from the headline aspects for totally. sure that help to someone picked Young Frankenstein mm-hmm. for this movie for the show. Yeah, and one of the things that Mel Brooks talked about a, a lot is saying that for the comedy to be real, everything else needed to be real too. Yeah, and that was why he emphasized making the environment fit for that sort of '30s movie. You know, because. Yeah. The, the subversions and things that, that bring you these laughs and these scares only work if you are feeling comfortable up to that point. Yeah. And so it needs to feel real in those ways. It's funny. Just talking about like having experience. I didn't realize this as I was watching. So like David Robert Mitchell is, I think, 12 or so years older than me. And so in 2011, I was 25 in L.A. I had just moved to L.A. I'm one of these... In the in the movie, I'm one of these young people that he's looking at, except I didn't live in Silver Lake. At that point, I lived in Westwood, mm. which was not – that was the Silver Lake of, like, the Brett Easton Ellis era. Right. Like, the, like, that's where the people used to, like, hang out then was in Westwood, but not at the time that I was living there. And I feel like if I had lived in Silver Lake already when I was in my early mid-20s, my life would be different and not wow. – not, in in positive ways and also maybe they should have another movie called into the western wood (laughs) (laughs) he does so patrick fishler he explains this hobo code to sam he also reveals among other things his theory about the owl's kiss being behind it all thanks to the hidden owl imagery on the dollar bill and the sexual innuendo that's connected with corporations ideologies you assume you adopted through free will but were actually forced upon you through hidden messages Mm -hmm. as common as tits and hamburgers Mm -hmm. he says this is like the gang stalking phenomenon where you meet another person who's like, yes, everything you have been experiencing is real. And they're trying to convince you that it's not real. Life is mostly not like Silver Linings Playbook where you take two people that are struggling with their mental health and they fix each other. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's a- that usually there's kind of an amplification effect sure, that can yeah, happen. Enabling. He's, he's just kind of meeting an older version of him, someone who has carried this even farther. Right. But he's using more reference points, I just want to point out. Patrick Fischler's older. He's in old cereal boxes and things like that that feel like they're more from 20 years before the Super Nintendo-type era that Sam comes from. We get another quick debrief with the bar buddy who says, like you said, that, of course, Sam's got a persecution complex. We all do. We weren't meant to be disconnected. This is mid-use of the drone that he got off Amazon to spy on a woman through her rear window. Yes. Uh, She starts to cry once she has a minute in what she thinks is privacy to decompress. Yes. It's so good. It's a really great, but like he's interrupted from the speech that lays out a lot of the themes of the movie about he's very rational about it and like everyone feels mm. persecuted and spied on and followed and all these things because we were supposed to be this connected he's like oh here she comes as yeah. hovering oh, a drone <laughs> oh showtime yes <laughs> sam walks home through the cemetery movie screening he notices that the women on screen are also there resting on hitchcock's grave then mm. leaving into a limo with the pirate yeah 
He's back, baby. I want to say, like, uh, David Robert, Robert Mitchell has talked about how he loves L.A. movies. And, like, Mulholland Drive is very close to this, like, women who are, like, doing sex work and also, like, being cast in movies at the same time. Like, that, right. the actress sexually exploited person is, like, pretty uh, well-tread territory. But the most of all in L.A. Confidential. That's what that, mm. that felt like the most direct line to me. This, this aspect because as we'll talk about in a little bit for sure sam goes to a secret show for one of the brides whose security asks him to take a bite of the cookie invitation i love the like sarcastic shoving of the whole thing in his mouth yeah it makes me laugh like you don't see it coming into being part of the plot at all yes <laughs> yes totally the bride sings a song lamenting the loss of innocence as these alabaster statues of men tower over them and hey who should it be but alan again yeah he's there he says that a friend of his told him about a secret message in one of the songs from jesus and the brides of dracula mm -hmm. one thing about the cookie i just like the cookie has the number 76 on it i don't know exactly how old sam is supposed to be in the movie but it felt like this is roughly supposed to be the year that that he was mm. born there you go. Yeah. There you go. I do also like she takes him down these vertigo stairs to old music night, like you said, but I find it really funny that it's like an actual secret show within the secret show. <laughs> yes, that's right. And there's one below that. There's 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 another level of depth uh, that we find right. out about later. They talk about Sarah and the idea of a secret message in the music, and Balloon Girl laughs it off. She says, it's silly to waste your time on something that doesn't matter when you think about the shortness of life. Yeah which is sort of one side of the, the perspective that we find emerging in this movie. Sam does get hype when What's the Frequency Kenneth starts to play, but the cookie, it turns out, was drugs, and so he suddenly becomes very ill. He runs into the bathroom to puke, and when he emerges, Balloon Girl is gone, but the blonde who need him has appeared. One that's uh, Grace Van Patten has been replaced by Zosha Mamet, both of whom right. have yeah, Hollywood relatives. They spot each other, and a chase ensues. He's still insanely high, though, so he collapses in the cemetery. And he wakes up from an incoming call from his mom, who talks again about Janet Gaynor. And it turns out that he passed out on her grave, which is like a fun, like, ooh, yes. eerie coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. We get another debrief from Bar Buddy, who says, of course, you're looking for a mystery, but it doesn't exist. There's no mystery anywhere left. Sam doesn't care. We get a fun montage of him trying to solve the code. And this is where he sort of goes to the jerk-off board, right? He's, yes. he's, he's working on this code. He needs to clear his mind. <laughs> he says, let me take a minute to myself. And here he's where he sees the escort service named Shooting Stars advertising with the pictures of the women that he saw last night. Yeah. And that felt to me like LA Confidential, like Fleur de Lis, whatever you desire. It's, it's right. connected to that. Exactly. He calls and the red-headed shooting star arrives and he dances around the question of what he does for work to ask why she's doing this when she was in the movie from last night. And she laughs at him and says, do you know how expensive it is to live out here? One indie movie doesn't cut it. I had a conversation like that uh, a couple years after living in, in LA with, um, I'll, I'll just say who it was. It was Nat Faxon, mm -hmm. who is an actor that you would recognize from a lot of different things. He, he had written The Descendants with Jim Rash right. from, from Community. They were writing partners, both actors as well. The Descendants had, was just come out, coming out or had just come out and had done was nominated for an Oscar, had done really well. And I was like, congratulations. Like, this is awesome. And he was like, yeah, we wrote that movie like seven years ago. It <laughs> took for like what we made off it, <laughs> like off of selling that script. It wasn't like a right. huge studio movie. 
like spread across many, many years, we're talking about it right now in the strike. Right. Even if a dollar amount can seem big for any movie sale, if you're only selling one every decade or something like that, split with your writing partner, huge cuts go to all of your reps. Your team, right? Yeah. yeah. Like we just see someone who's like up on, their name is up on screen. We're like, oh, they did it. <laughs> but even they are doing it. And it, we get the sense that Sam did not even get close to that. Right. He didn't have that movie sale. Nope. And even if he had, it wouldn't have been anywhere nope. near enough. Yep. He digs in on who the pirate was, but she doesn't know anything about him, at least, because she recognizes Sarah's photo on the fridge. It turns out she'd seen Sarah in a glass case wearing a Dalmatian suit like a pet shop at a weird party full of old men tapping at the glass. In my mind, this is the sort of the audition for the Ascension. Uh-huh. Where it was like the men were like going to a pet store and choosing who they're going to take with them. Right. Yeah. She also describes a franchise of big action movies based on household cleaning products. You know Vin Diesel is desperate for that Mr. Clean call. (laughs) (laughs) The rest of the party is described as this insane free range party across multiple houses straight out of Gatsby, she says, except for the biggest house they couldn't go in, which was owned by the songwriter. This party and the redacted on map aspects that we'll see later of the compound seem to be a reference to the Bohemian Grove, which is a clandestine group of powerful men who meet at a secret location in the woods near Sonoma to perform a ritual centered on the burning of an effigy before a big owl statue. It's also, I feel like, kind of location specific, even beyond the Bohemian Grove, which is like LA and this neighborhood has the largest urban park in the country right Mm. in the middle of it, Griffith Park. And there is this sense, even though you're like, you're in this city with 10 million other people in the in the county, and it's very widely explored, but there you absolutely believe that there are just still some kind of inaccessible, there are gated neighborhoods like in, around here where you just feel like there's just a lot of places that are just kind of, we, we don't know exactly what's going right. on. Right, and that's exactly what Sam feels. Sam, he is hard at code-breaking work. He finds a pattern in the lyrics for the song that reveals the message, rub Dean's head and wait under Newton. So how about that? And he does it, and he goes to the James Dean statue at the Griffith Observatory, and he's greeted by the homeless mm-hmm. king, a very surreal scene that does, again, not to keep going back to Mulholland Drive, but does feel a lot like the cowboy meeting Justin Thoreau at the top of Mulholland Drive. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And I and I think David Robert Mitchell's very open about being super referential in this movie to to other LA sure. movies. And hey, he's right to do it. It's one of the best of all time in my opinion. So <laughs> Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. The homeless king takes him to an underground path while discussing the holiness of coyotes, then leaves him to the cave system alone. The path ultimately leads to a shelter, hilariously juxtaposed in the white and plastic against the pyramidic Pharaoh's tome style entrance. Yes. I don't know to what extent this is relevant, but the the homeless king is played by David Yao, who was the lead singer of the Jesus Lizard. Wow. Which was an an, an Austin band, but there's also another band in the movie with Jesus. That's true. That's very true. This, uh, I think he's amazing in it. I would not swap him out, but when I first watched this movie, I was like, you got to call Tom Waits for this role, dog. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, sure. Oh, God. Absolutely. Yes. The exit also leads Sam to the back of a fridge at the grocery store where he steals some milk, which also really made me laugh. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, really funny. You just kind of feel like, oh, he <laughs> he was doing that anyway. 
and just built this whole narrative around like how he ended up there going through secret tunnels under under Griffith Park. He just needs needs sustenance. That's how I get to the supermarket. <laughs> he heads. He, I mean, obviously, he heads for the Zine Writer's house. So you got to talk this shit out, right? But he finds a crime scene there, and the police tell him that a neighbor found Patrick Fischler having committed suicide. Mm-hmm. Sam is shocked, so he decides to break in here, too, and check it out. And when he does, first he finds a shocking amount of blood, and then <laughs> decides to head for the secret cameras. And what he finds there, folks, may surprise you. Because it was, in fact, the owl's kiss. Yes. It, he sees this nude woman with, a, with an owl mask slinking in. It. It's very scary. And, yeah, we don't see the... Oh, and then she looks straight to camera. And there's a little sting. Yeah. A, he he watches it twice, even. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> she said, keep my name out of your damn mouth. Yeah. I'm about to come in here and kill your ass. Yeah. He calls Alan while he's walking along being barked at by several dogs. This is where mm-hmm. Alan says, if you want to meet Jesus, come to this chess party with me. The chess party, I got to say, it looks like fun. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And it's a host of familiar faces. The shooting stars are there. Balloon Girl is there, who is revealed to also be a shooting star. Mm -hmm. The brides. And yes, the J-Man himself. And Sam follows him to the bathroom this time. He's even more aggressive. He beats the shit out of him, literally, to demand answers for the code in the song. I laughed so hard at the voice when he's like, why are you hitting me? Really funny. Really (laughs) great performance. Absolutely. He says he doesn't know about the code because he didn't write it or any of the hits. Mm -hmm. They came from a studio anonymously who said if he didn't play these songs, he'd lose his contract because they're important work from the songwriter. Mm -hmm. This clicks for him. So he asks the shooting stars to take him to the house. He climbs some walls. It literally looks like a storybook or like Oz that he's walking into there. And one thing, you know, you you mentioned that men like the songwriter, they haven't filled the void that they were seeking to fill. Miserable. He's so miserable. The house is enormous, but devoid of any bustle or joy. You know, the room that he's in even is filled with famous musicians' instruments, but there's also this taxidermy, and it's clearly drawing a parallel to the lifeless trophies that surround him with these instruments. Yeah. It's really powerful stuff. And he doesn't even know who they belong to, and this idea is like, not only did Sam not achieve his goal of... I mean, this is the same thing that this type of person who was dissatisfied with their Hollywood career believes that like someone, some nameless entity is in charge of what gets made and what doesn't. And you're not part of that club. Right. And so it was never possible for you to achieve. That's right. But even this person that in the, in the, fiction of the movie who has created every single thing that that people love like the, the media that has been consumed is also miserable and that has the same void right has such a diminished view of it as well be, and, and the artistry that went into it because he is also talking about how he's being paid to do it right he's trying he's right. being paid to make the messages that's the right. important part yes and he, he says i've slipped messages into this for generations i blow my nose and there's your wedding song yeah there is no rebellion there's only me earning a paycheck yeah and he's talking right into camera he's taunting us and sam yes totally he tries to shoot sam ultimately and sam smashes his face in with kurt cobain's guitar as mm-hmm. we talked about a symbol of great importance to him yes Also important, I think, is that he breaks the symbol in the effort. Right. Mm -hmm. It's an impactful moment. It does feel like some actual rebellion saying, like, it's not that you can't take influence from art you've connected with, but 
maybe don't necessarily put these people on a pedestal because there is transactionalism in everything that goes on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sam returns home with the songwriter's gun, Body Snatchers is on TV, and he's awoken by a smash at his window, and slowly the owl's kiss emerges from the cabinet. Yeah. Also fucking terrifying. <laughs> yeah. She gets two on us. She has this knife. She approaches Sam. That almost felt like not a reference to It Follows or like his previous. I mean, you're expecting some kind of consummation there that just does not happen. She's sneaking up on him with a knife and he just turns around and she's like, ah, she's so scared of the gun. Runs away. (laughs) It's a very human moment for her to be freaked out by the gun in a way that you're like, yeah. What's going on? Like, she, I thought she was like a cryptid. Like, what is going yeah, on here? Yeah, totally. So funny. Also, when he checks the drawer for her, <laughs> like, is looking around. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Why not? She was in the cabinet. Who the fuck knows? Yeah. And this surreal moment is interrupted by an attempted eviction of Sam, who successfully pleads for one more day. But now he's in a funk. He's smoking on the balcony. And he spots a coyote. So, recalling the homeless king's advice, he follows it. This takes him to another party, also attended by Millicent Sevens, also a weird child auteur, and also also his ex-girlfriend, who's on the billboard that he's been staring at, Mm -hmm. now engaged to another man. So this is, in itself, another trinity, but mostly we're interested here in Millicent, who he approaches about Sarah and Jefferson while she's looking at the Janet Gaynor painting on his wall, or on the wall. And they head off a little bit to discuss what they know. They pass a memorial wall to the murdered dogs where he says, this is where he says a dog bit him. And he also goes on this rant about the unhoused after getting cursed out for being cheap. And his rant here about living on the fringe, watching a society that they can't participate in, people eating good food and falling in love. Not only is it ironic because he is, in fact, living on the fringe and about to be unhoused himself. Yeah, the landlord says earlier in the movie where when he when he asked the landlord like why did Sarah just leave without saying goodbye? He says I don't know. Maybe she doesn't want to hang out with a guy who's homeless, yeah. like who's, who's not paying his rent. Maybe because you're so poor. Yeah, you need to pay me. Yeah, I mean obviously that moment like connects very hard with like with with me, and it's the kind of stuff that you hear all the time. It is remarkable, remarkable how many people. I talk to on a on a daily basis who feel that like someone on the street is 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 given more privilege than than they are. What what he says is he says I fucking hate the homeless. Like the, people everyone says we're supposed to help them. I just feel like they're bullies. Mm-hmm. And also he says they just hang out they're like ghosts. Or he call, he says poltergeists. Again, very era specific reference for him. Right. But they're like ghosts. They hang, they hang out on the fringes, just like watching us and like feeding off of our experience, which, yes, is exactly what he does. And so there is that revulsion, which I also see all the time. I talk to lots of people who I'm just like, I'm not like these other people. Like, I hate these people. I don't want to, you know, I'm not like this. Right. But I think here in L.A., there is a horror of possibility and of recognition for a lot of people that like so much of this movie is about having some kind of revulsion than having to transfer it into some other place. Right. Well, I mean, we'll just get to the next part in, in the plot of the movie. They swim in the Silver Lake Reservoir under the moonlight. She says that she has something secret to uh, 
Millicent Sevens has some has something to give him, gives him a bracelet that she found in her father's office, and then a sniper is shooting at them from the hills. They right. go underwater. She ends up getting shot, and the tableau of her death is is the Playboy cover that he is masturbated to. Right. So he's taken this like r- like revulsion, hatred of women, lust, like transferring it in- into these like violent, also sexual images because she's naked. He's taken the same hatred, turned it into killing dogs potentially, and in the same way, I think a lot of people here see the huge, huge number of people on the street and feel just an all-encompassing disgust, disgust of, of not feeling like they can do anything about it, impotence, wanting to be in some kind of control over the situation that they can't control at all, and also whatever possibility in their own lives could see this same thing happen to them, one of the most common of which is that they could experience a very severe mental health condition through no fault of their own. Right. And just end up in this slow decline, exactly what we're seeing with this guy, to end up in that exact same place. And I think that is basically the most terrifying thing that can happen to you. I mean, I think a lot of horror movies are like death is is the terror, something that happens to literally every person. <laughs> How can this be the most terrifying thing that exists if it happens to everybody? But this does not happen to everybody. Right. And it is it is a like a real life horror that th- this this person in in this movie is experiencing. And I think it's very intentional, that little speech about uh, the, about how much he hates the homeless is, I, I think, meant to evoke that tension that so many people here have. Definitely. And I mean, not only is it, I feel this way about people in general, but this is also a view that you could say about the outside world looking at the silver screen, baby. Oh, my God. Yes. We go there to see people fall in love, to see them eat good food. And if you are not experiencing those things, Mm -hmm. it can feel like they are rubbing it in your face. Yeah. And also at the same time, the the way people that I hear from talk about homelessness – it's it's amazing. They say like, why do they just get to like hang out all day doing drugs? Like they, they don't have to work. Like I pay taxes. They don't have to contribute to society. Why does that person who lives in a tent get to block the sidewalk? Where if I put a barbecue grill out there, like I'd get cited for you know cooking in a public place or whatever it is. Why does someone who and it is true if you live in your car, there are different rules about whether your car gets towed for if you like leave your car in one place for too long and and you don't live in it, right? So you're like, why do they have a different set of rules from us? And in my head, I'm like, you can go go live in your car. <laughs> yeah. If it's if it seems so great to you, I mean, this is a nightmare for yeah. for everyone who is experiencing it. But there is for some people that same bizarre sense of jealousy that we have for someone who has seen this like very successful in their career you get those same notes when people talk about people that are on the street like why do they get to do this right get to (laughs) (laughs) it's awful yeah it's just like the sort of mirror image of the codes in media and the hobo code that he's seeing this sort of yes. low status high status yes. mirror image and he doesn't get to fit into either one of these communities they're both happening in some way that he doesn't get to be a part of it and that inspires in him hatred and violence you also mentioned earlier that 
he sort of does all of this stuff in a way to make himself interesting and appealing to these young women. And here, when he goes into the reservoir with Millicent, and she says, oh, I want it to look like we're sneaking away to screw. Yeah. And he goes, oh, we're not? We're not? Like, yeah. <laughs> like, like, he thought that that was what was happening. Yeah. The sense that a lot of the movie does feel like a dream. He never, I mean, he has sex in a way that we are meant to believe is like very real and it's not particularly romantic. Right. They're watching the news, like yeah. not looking at each other w- 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 with the actress. But in all right. of these kind of like fanciful situations, in the same way as like I remember like being a horny teenager and the dreams that you would have don't actually ever really like consummate in that way. <laughs> it's just kind of all around it. And then now something else is happening. Yeah. That happens with right. Keo's character in the beginning like it never gets there it happens with Millicent there's a lot of uh, coitus interruptus in this case it's a sniper right right a sniper that we never see who that is or anything no so. yeah it's just part of the conspiracy yes he awakes the next morning she is dead but he now has this bracelet that said npm 1 35 to 37 h6 to g4 and after some more code breaking effort realizes that this connects to another magazine that he had a connection to, Nintendo Power Issue 1, with the pages referring to a map for Legend of Zelda. Yeah, this and this is, by the way, the most authentic experience of someone who has some kind of paranoid schizophrenia. It's like they're barely even trying at this point and how 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 badly his condition has advanced. We're like, okay, so this guy, this rich guy's bracelet references a magazine, (laughs) a Nintendo power issue that you happen to have in your house. Of course. Like, think about this. Think (laughs) about this. This is not real. Yeah, but it's but it but it's real to him. Yeah, it's real to him. Mm hmm. Sam gets the box of cereal that he took from the comics writer, who was sure that the map in it would lead him somewhere. It's so funny when Sam absentmindedly eats one, and it's fucking gross. Yes. <laughs> he, like, spits yes. it out, because yes. it's decades old. But he lays it over the Zelda map, and it fits perfectly. I also love there's a little Zelda-esque tune of Triumph yeah. that plays in the score, which I yes. like. Yeah. But the movement indicates he should be going from Silver Lake Reservoir to Mount Hollywood. And there's no satellite image available for Mount Hollywood, so he has to go himself past the stone wall with three slashes on it. More hobo code that says this is not a safe place. Very spooky. Mm -hmm. The path leads up to a little shack with a direct view of the Hollywood sign. And inside are the three women that he's been following and an older man. He demands answers at gunpoint. They're pretty relaxed, though. They say that wasn't a bomb shelter down there, as he assumed but a tomb for modern kings like this man and Jefferson Sevens, akin to the pharaohs and great men throughout centuries. It's not about burial, it's about ascension. It's not heaven, it's something exclusive and real. I love that line too. It's not heaven, it's exclusive and real. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, really funny. That is, it is so funny, but it also like, the same way that Sam is talking about the homeless. Totally. For these guys to be like, oh, if it was heaven, I wouldn't have to deal with the riffraff, right? Like, yeah. That makes it not heaven to me. I think the way he, he's talking about it is heaven is a place where, like, everyone who's, like, good gets to go. Like, this is better than heaven. It's actually exclusive. Mm. Heaven is, is not exclusive. Right. And it's fake. This right. is This is real. <laughs> and th- this, to me, is, like... Also represented as a guy like Jefferson Sevens who has made it in some way, who is in control of the whole system. 
and has, has still needed to create an extra layer of exclusivity and achievement that like within the movie sam's character is now kind of the sane one right he's like you're not gonna there's you're just gonna die down there mm-hmm. like they're like no 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 you don't understand you like, don't get it sam yes <laughs> yeah so even he is able to observe this from the outside and be like <laughs> this is crazy <laughs> Sarah is revealed to be in the already sealed tomb of Jefferson Sevens. Sam is furious, but this guy is like, well, they could still receive calls, so let's get him on the old horn here. Yes. <laughs> Sarah answers. She is surprised at Sam's delight in seeing her, considering he knew her for about 90 yeah, minutes. Says, well, we barely knew each other. Yeah. He asks her if she really wants to be down there. She does seem to be questioning her decision, but she kind of shrugs it off, and she says, well, there's no getting out now, so I may as well make the best of it. Cut to an image of the Hollywood sign. He says, me too. Mm, there you go. He says, me too. And he's not down there. In a, he's not locked up <laughs> in a tomb or whatever, but he's in something. How is he going to just make the best of it? That's right. This specifically really reminds me of Babylon. Mm-hmm. In that movie, our protagonist sees that the movie machine chews people and their stories up. Mm-hmm. But he also sees what it can give you. Mm-hmm. So if you're already marginalized to hell, there's only so much downside to making the Faustian bargain, right? Mm-hmm. If you're already being put upon in, in these awful, awful ways, you might as well get something out of it. Yeah. Sarah recommends that Sam get a dog before she hangs up, since he says he's not doing well. A little unconditional love is what he needs in Mm -hmm. her prescription. Now that the call is over, uh, we again get this sort of high-status, low-status mirror image here, where the rich guy parrots what Balloon Girl said about how temporary things are, but from the perspective of someone who gets more. So while her speech feels sort of joyful and living in the moment, his is very nihilistic. He says, this isn't a world that anybody with any sense stays in or spends much time worrying about. Mm -hmm. You're living in a carnival, hoping to win a prize. What are you going to win? A two-week vacation? A new car? A little money to retire on? It's all just a shitty, sawdust-filled rabbit. Great, great speech. Carnival music comes in during that in a really Mm -hmm. fun way. Yeah. And it does, like, it feels like a punch in the gut. Yeah, and and the transition... For, I mean, this is one of this is basically the climax of of the movie, and they 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 sip some tea and they all go unconscious to prepare for their ascension. But how this leads into the, into the final moments, I think, is really interesting. That's right, Sam. He's about to pass out. He sees the homeless king emerge from a hatch in the ground, and he brings him to this like dungeon. Basically, there's a pretty gentle interrogation, all things considered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He yeah. thinks that this guy is the dog killer. And this is what we talked about. The homeless king says, why are you carrying dog biscuits? He says that he his ex-girlfriend used to have a dog, and he he just wants to be able to like pet her dog and rub it behind the ears and like make it all okay. It, it'll be like it was before. It's how a guy that kills dogs would talk about <laughs> his, 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 his desire that, that, that's associated with this. It feels the most real of all his excuses. It does, and... The king accepts this answer. He says, okay, yeah. And for a while, I accepted it as well. And I thought to myself, this is the truth coming out in the heat of the moment. Not only because of the thematic desire for innocence that we've seen, like a a, a time of innocence that we've seen him come through, but also, like I said, maybe it's less specifically Sam and more just like the men who come to LA with not just a dream, but the sense of entitlement as well. Mm -hmm. And the way that that can degenerate into violence. People who become so bitter at their failure that they rail against the system keeping it out. 
And there's a moment, and I mean, whatever time he's thinking about going back to is when he was in L.A., and he probably hadn't achieved like significant career success, but he has prospects. Like, he has hope. Right. You can be like a lot of the younger people in Silver Lake, you still kind of gravitate towards them, even if they don't have great careers or whatever, because like, oh, maybe they will in the future. But now this guy's 33 or whatever it is, and he's not that's not going to happen for him anymore. So he, he'll even go back to the time where he wasn't successful, but at least he was young. Right. Had the dream still. Yeah. He does return home. He goes and has sex with the older woman with the parrot who also doesn't know what he's saying. Well, there's a really funny moment before that. Just another one of the really funny lines of the movie where the homeless king releases him. And Sam says, you're not going to kill me. And the homeless king goes, uh, we might. I don't know. We're, like, <laughs> we're not. I'm not sure. <laughs> he's still mulling it over. We might. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, let's talk about this. He's in his apartment. Stay quiet, hobo code has been spray painted on his wall. That's right. He looks out. He has a big decision to make now. And he sees that, like, the woman with the bird who's topless. And you said she's an older woman, which I think is one of the most important things about that, that, that he ends up with this person who he explicitly rejected in one of the first sequences of the movie. He doesn't want to look at her. She's topless. Right. He wants to look over. At this, at, at this younger woman in a bathing suit. Right. And he's like ogling this young woman while a, a, like a woman's breasts are hanging out like right over there that he's not interested in because this person is older. It's just a, a, assumed by all the everyone watching. And she's off in some, you know, like she, she's got tons of birds. Like she's like a sort of odd bird lady. But he ends up in this kind of protected it's like a nest like he feels safe and protected it feels like everything it feels like a happy ending that he ends up here she even likes the smell she asks if it's patchouli <laughs> she likes his smell is that patchouli says no <laughs> <laughs> and then he looks out at his old apartment right over there at his old life he sees his landlord and the sheriff uh, the sheriff's deputy coming in to evict him but he's kind of it feels like he's kind of safe over here now and he's starting this other thing. And I don't know like 100% the intention of of what the director is 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 trying to say, but to me it kind of feels like you meet people out here that you're just like how are they still <laughs> doing this? Like they aren't working. They're weird for sure, but they've got their place Rent control is amazing. Like they've been here for a really long time and they've like managed to like they're not paying as much as uh, people that moved here when they were much younger. And they are they're just making it work. They have whatever support they need from somewhere to like to 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 keep it going and fend off the worst outcomes that that people face from this type of insecurity. And that he has landed with someone like that. She's also not at work in the middle of the day. Uh, she's she's out on her balcony topless and she's got all these birds around, but like he's gonna be okay in in this ver- like and, and it almost feels like it's it has diverted some of his worst mental health mental health outcomes too. He's maybe gonna be sort of a weird guy forever, but he's settled into this place where you can just make it work into like your old age sure which i i I mean it really hits hard and it 
the, the, it, there is an unsatisfying aspect to the movie, which is you never know what the bird is saying. That's true. That's and the I, one loose thread. And people that are trying to like piece it together, like it sounds like it's saying Oliver sometimes. I think it's meant to be sort of an unbreakable coat. And she doesn't know either. The bird owner doesn't know. But she, she doesn't, doesn't really care. care. That, and she I love, care. I lo- yeah, I love that. She's like, who cares? Like, even if there is a code and it's not meant for you, yes. Then what the fuck do you care? Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I mean, like that that resolution coming out of the speech that the guy who's getting ready to ascend makes about stepping outside of the workaday where this woman is not involved in Hollywood. This woman does not have like Hollywood ambitions. She has stayed and maybe she did at some point, but she is like in this place in a position of comfort, stability, and like a, a lack of ambition. Yeah. And so it does feel like some of the speech that this guy made has actually been internalized that like that he's not gonna keep keep his ambition, not gonna keep working, but he's found a way to to make that work. I love that. I think that that really works. It's a, certainly a much more pleasant ending than how I interpret this yeah. sort of the credits to me. This is sort of where I landed with the dog killer stuff. So we'll sort of get into that now as well. It ends with strange currencies and the uh-huh. credits are so dark and great. It's yeah. more of the comic style stuff. But to me, it does seem to sort of continue Sam's paranoia. Sure. There's a ton of dog killer imagery. And Sam looking around, like walking around looking sullen. But also we see some more of the hobo code. Right. And what the hobo code translations are, are jail and warning of four barking dogs. Yeah. And so I think that it was him. He couldn't stop himself. And he got caught when there were more than he anticipated. Yeah. During one attempted murder here. That's interesting, and that's what the part of what the movie intends to do is turn you into sam right and to be try be attempting to decipher codes be like applying layers of meaning to stuff that like maybe has it maybe doesn't i interpreted the the end credit sequence as basically like a um mighty duck style rap <laughs> of like here's what happened in the movie here's some Hell yeah here's some animations that we had lying around just we need to like let's let's make this a little more compelling to to look at sure we've got it's a, a lower budget movie that has fifty executive producers. Like let's <laughs> let's let's use our time well here, right? But while I didn't see any like it didn't apply like the code breaking to to that necessarily. What I did do after the movie is go to look up like some of the little clues and things like that, and it's so much richer than I ever could have perceived on on first viewing. The little clues that the director has left behind in this movie. Did you, did you, have you read about these? I have, I have uh, what seems to be as completed of the code as possible. Yes. So a few different codes in the movie are, are very well hidden. One is in the first scene at mustard seed on, on the menu. There's, there's Morse code written somewhere. That's, that's hard to see. And there, there are other codes that you wouldn't even understand to be codes unless you were really into cryptography that basically allude to this, this map app called what three words. That's right. And what three word? the way what I had never heard of it. I love it. It's such a fun, amazing idea. The way what three words works is you can give someone three words 
And if you enter those three words into this map, they are associated with not just a location, a very, very precise, I think it's like three meter by three meter square. Right. It's like the, the geographical coordinates, basically. Yes. And so you can say tree mug pencil, and that that will be likely associated with a very specific place. So it's a right. fun, almost like spy craft way to translate words to place. And fun fact, the logo of what three words is the hobo code for this is not a safe place. Yes. Yes. And so people have been working to figure out, okay, we need to figure out what the three words are that we put in here and that'll connect to a location. The closest people seem to have gotten is the three dolls that that Sarah has for uh, Betty Grable, Lauren Bacall, and Marilyn Monroe in her room have the doll's names and under them have Zodiac code. And if you decipher the Zodiac code, it produces one word for each doll. Tombstone, sheriff, entries. Tombstone, sheriff, entries. And if you enter that in that sequence into what three words, it takes you to a, a square in California, which is some credence to like, maybe this is it, but it's in the middle of Sequoia Kings Canyon National Park. And it doesn't seem to me from all the reading I've done on this, I don't think that anyone has gone to check on that square because I don't think it, it seems like it'd be really hard to access. And I don't think anyone is super confident, it's like confident <laughs> enough that this is it to go check that that very precise location. I personally think it, it probably is somewhere in Griffith Park. Interesting. See, to me, I there are enough elements of that location in Kings Canyon that works for me like thematically because first of all it's right underneath barton's peak as well which is something that they talked about so it's sort of maybe like another ascension chamber because it's another pyramid shape king's canyon you know we talked about the sort of elements of these people need to be remembered they're the modern day kings and pharaohs and it's also very near mitchell's peak which is the last name of our writer director so i was thinking maybe this is him saying this is his peak uh, it will never get better than this for him, and, and, and it, it, this is the code. It, it's definitely possible. I, it's a lot of work to do. Sure. To say like, okay, you know, Sequoia National Park is it's not that far, but it's far from LA. Mm -hmm. It's like a five-hour drive or so, and to get to this specific location, it doesn't look that accessible. But to work backwards from like if this, it's named Mitchell Peak and things <laughs> yeah. like that. Like it's a lot. It's That's a lot. True. That is true. That is definitely true. And I definitely understand the people that have pursued this really far, needing a catharsis for it. For yes, sure. but also <laughs> wanting to be a little more sure before they go. It doesn't mm. seem to have been cathartic enough for anyone to be like, okay, I went. <laughs> right. That's true too. So. The most romantic version of it that really appeals to me. I mean, this movie is about this area. And it's a, like, well, there are maps of this area. And it, it does get to a thing that's true about it, which is I could totally, totally believe that something was hidden in Griffith Park for not just, I mean, for decades. And that just no one had found it. Mm -hmm. If you told me that there's five bodies in there that just people haven't, haven't come upon yet. I would 100% believe that that's the case. They found one last year in the Hollywood Hills area that had been there for years. So I I feel like people will know 
when they find it because if you rearrange the word some people rearrange the, the those three words to find other versions of it because they're in a different position on screen in the movie and when she's holding the three dolls they're in a different sequence so people try to is it entry entries tombstone sheriff or something like that and those lead to you know the australian desert <laughs> and so i think people have rightly been like okay it's probably not there right but i i hope people keep i don't want to do it <laughs> and i do think it can make you into a like listen to how we're talking listen to what you just said it's mitchell peak it's far, <laughs> like king's canyon the kings of like you sound like him yeah <laughs> it's 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 like weird, oh my god <laughs> it's like weird patterns that like you know you imagine explaining that to a person who hadn't seen the movie Right. That's Ricky Lindholm's reaction. She'd be like, okay, (laughs) I'll see you later. No, no, you don't understand. At the bottom of the coffee menu, there's some secret (laughs) signals that tell me what I'm supposed to be seeing. But in this movie, that's the thing I love about it so much. He is like, oh, but this is real. I am actually doing it. Like, yeah. <laughs> like this, it's here for you. There's something here. Right. And the perfect version of it is that it doesn't actually lead to any, I mean, that would be so That's devious. Right. <laughs> That's the taunt. And there are people in the movie saying like, it, it looks like stuff looks like it has meaning, but it actually doesn't. And that uh, Grace Van Patten says it's a waste of time to be pursuing something that like is of no importance. Right. Just live your life. You yeah. have so little of it. But it's why we've spent two plus hours like talking about it's so rich. It's exactly the type of movie I like in that way. But it also has very dark, very scary elements that apply to any one of our lives and in horrific ways. Absolutely. And Hayes, I think that's a perfect transition into the final part of the show where we talk about why this isn't just a good horror movie, yeah. but is in fact the best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you start. I can't I can't defend that. And as you've done this show for a long time, it's a, an impossible ask because it has to be sure. the best horror movie ever made that no one has done before on your show. That's true. That is true. I would say for me personally, for a movie that scared me a lot and i i've had unsettling like resurfaced in my mind in ways that feel unsettling for years after and that i've also spent a lot of time like researching the different clues to try and like uncover the like the the deeper meaning of for me personally the movie that has consumed me the most in that way is mulholland drive and the second one is under the silver lake so that Mulholland Drive was already taken, but of the ones still available, <laughs> Under the Silver Lake covers... So, I mean, I can't really say it's the best ever because it's also so personal to me. I sure. live here and it's about so... And I, I work for the city of LA that covers like so much of the, the area that is focused on this movie. So it, it, it almost can't be the best for anyone else as much as it is for, for me. But I do love it, and for anyone who who didn't, I do I do think it's worth uh, worth a second chance. I agree with that, and although you you say it can't be anybody else's best, I'm gonna give it a shot here. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because I personally find movies about art and the artistic process to be pretty interesting, and 
as I have grown up and become more cognizant of not just my own impact on people, but the way that our culture and society impacts everybody in every capacity, the the question of, is this transaction worth it, Mm -hmm. becomes more and more pressing. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. as someone who spends a lot of their time watching movies, analyzing movies, this is something that that you have to reckon with, right? Mm -hmm. There is so much abuse happening because of the Hollywood system. Mm-hmm. And and even the conspiracy theorists who say that there is even, even more devilish stuff going on, even if you throw all that stuff out, the stuff that is confirmed in the way that it treats low-income people, in the way that it treats women, minorities, it is so awful in so many ways. But you also, it does bring meaning to a lot of people, right? That these things, that these these little bits of ephemera that we laugh at and go, oh, it's Nintendo Power Magazine, what, like, who the fuck gives a shit? To him, that is important. And for a lot of people, a lot of different movies can have that same kind of importance. And for this, to turn the horror on us and say, are we the ones perpetuating this? Are, are we willing to just throw our fellow man under the bus because we want to keep being these poltergeists on the edge of society and see what we can't actually get, that to me is true terror. Yes, there is a slasher moment in this. Yes, there's a lot of surreality that is really great and really powerful. Yes, it reminds me of one of my favorite movies in Mulholland Drive. But the fact that this becomes not just about Hollywood culture, but then also there are things that make it more like American culture at large. The 76 uh, that you mentioned on the on the cookie could just be like, oh, mm-hmm. this is America, right? This is this happens everywhere in the country. It's just such a powerful movie. It throws you for a loop. You feel the the spiral in such a powerful way. And for a movie to break the shackles of something that you watch and instead become something that you experience and to have the legs that you experience it for days, weeks even after doing research on what this might mean, that is just remarkable. That's a remarkable achievement, and that's why this is the best horror movie ever made to me. That's beautiful. <laughs> I want to challenge and like, I want to push the horror even further. Yeah. Something so horrible that I, I don't think you even like let yourself acknowledge like the personal connection to it. Sure. You talk about like the movie turning the horror on ourselves as consumers, as perpetuators of this system that has led to so many broken lives, and that we're the poltergeist as the audience, right? But let's talk about the horror and just the in- insanity of our work as content creators, right? Podcasters, this deranged dream, the two of us just like sitting, talking into a microphone one of hundreds of thousands of, of pieces of content that are put out in the world out of this like desperation to be consumed right. for people to listen to us, to love us. Right. Validate my thoughts on the movie, right? <laughs> yes. What are we keeping at bay with this? Like, what do we mm. need? And like, how could this desire, if not satisfied, if not medicated properly, how could this distort into something unrecognizably horrible the, the way this movie shows authentically happens every single day 
terrifying scary yeah absolutely absolutely (laughs) uh and how could you say it's not the best horror movie ever made with an ending like that (laughs) (laughs) hayes i want to thank you so much for coming on the show man this was so much fun Please tell the people where they can find you. Check out the Flagrant Family of Pods, all that jazz. Yes. After after saying that, please listen to my podcasts. I have so many. Yeah, you could if you just Google the Flagrant ones, you could find our Patreon or we the uh, Sean Clements and I have a show called Hollywood Handbook that we've been doing for more than a decade. Hell yeah. So, yeah, please please listen to and comment on my podcast. <laughs> I definitely encourage you all to do that. Hollywood Handbook is a delight. I listen to all of the associated pods as well, and they are each fantastic in their own unique ways. And as far as my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at Little Hor- No, not on Twitter. I'm not on Twitter anymore. <laughs> Just force of habit. <laughs> you can find me on Blue Sky, though, at, at Little Horror PHL. That's on Letterboxd as well. But if you're really enjoying the show, you could check out the Patreon. We've got all kinds of fun episodes over there. If you're looking for just more normal feed episodes, Brothy Gupta was just on talking about Rocky Horror Picture Show. Aaron Whitehead was just on talking about You've Got Mail as a horror movie, which was a lot of fun. That's great. And not that big of a stretch yeah. once you really watch it. Lots of great stuff. Uh, I also want to just point out a couple other maybe like movies that people might enjoy based on this, which are Kodoko, directed and written by the guy who did Tetsuo the Iron Man, Shinya Tsukamoto, and also Session 9, a movie that we just did a bonus episode on for this podcast, has a lot of similar sort of like capitalism grinding you down so hard until you become something unrecognizable to yourself. So a lot of similar themes in those two movies. Definitely uh, encourage you all to check that out. That'll be on Patreon ASAP. That's it. Thanks, everyone. Bye.